morning. I got so, thanks for leading us in worship. I was over there not even thinking about what was coming next, and I was like, oh no, I don't have my microphone ready or anything. So, um, well, we kind of live in a world that's, that's um, we, we kind of expect things to be instant, right? Uh, we send somebody a message, and then you sit there and wait for their answer, right? You kind of expect a text message to return immediately, and I, I, I do this out of respect for you. I, I leave the read receipts on there, so you can tell when I've I've read your message, and I think that's the respectful thing to do so that we know when you've read it. The problem is, I can see when you've read it too, right? And then you have read my message and no response. And, and I'm sitting here waiting for this response and nothing comes. And so, all, all the kids nowadays, right? You say you, you left them on red. Is that right? Something like that. Um, but you're leaving, it, you're leaving it so that you know that it's been read and you're waiting for this response and nothing comes. And then all the questions start to come. Why didn't they respond? Are they mad? What's going on? Something must be happening. And, and, and then you can start the what if process of making up all the grand ideas of what's probably going on in your head. And they're like, oh, sorry, I just forgot. Or, you, I don't know, you're probably thinking your best friend hates you and all these other things now. Um, or you're like me. Sometimes you get that text me message that comes through, and it's like, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? And you're like, that's a loaded question. Because it could be something really good or something really bad, like they need help moving or something. Um, and you're like, I'm not doing that piano again. Um, so you just don't answer. I, but I think that, that can be kind of how we feel is that, that we're promised these, this response. We're, we're promised something on the other side. And when, when nothing's coming back, we can feel like hope is lost. And we can feel like we can sit in despair. And then we start asking all these questions. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 40 is that as of right now, we don't have answers. We don't know. There's a lot of promises that have been made. The answers aren't there yet. And there's a lot of questions beginning to be raised. And we're sitting here trying to go, what's going to be coming? And this is in chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, if you want to turn there. This is where we start to see some of those answers come through. So Isaiah chapter 40 really is a turning point in the book of Isaiah. 1 through 39 are very much about um, the punishment that's coming for the rebellion against God and the, the nation of Israel choosing not to follow God, even though promises have been made that they were going to be a great nation, they were going to be uh, kings, that they were, God's kingdom on earth was going to be through this nation. And yet, chapter 40 is kind of almost speaking forward to when they are going to be on the end of exile. They're going to be taken into captivity, and looking back, they're going to see how God is going to be helping them at the end of exile. So, I guess... I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to say this a million times. It's last week. Justin preached last week. That last time we were here, Justin preached, and we talked about where, how do we find hope in a world that seems so hopeless? And the answer was we don't, right? We don't find our hope in this world, but we find it only in, in the person of Jesus who, sorry, I'm going to get it, the, the one who created, rules, and restores our world. So our, our hope is only in Jesus, and so the Israelites have experienced this captivity. They're waiting for this future hope. And they're just waiting. And even at this time, they're kind of still holding on to the idea that there is going to be that hope at some point. But in that, we're going to look at some serious questions that are raised um, as we hold fast those promises. I want to clarify, too, that when we talk about hope, 
that hope is not just wishful thinking. Like I hope to win the lottery and you cross your fingers, you know, it's, it's like wishful thinking. When we talk about biblical future hope, we're talking about the, an expectation that it's, gonna, it's going to be that what God promised, he's going to be faithful to do. So we put our hope in him. And so when we look at that today, these questions that are raised and then are answered in this, in this chapter, um, I think that these are questions that we probably still ask today and we need to know the responses to today. So before we do that, let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, your great love for us. I thank you that um, through all the things that we face, that you're always with us. So God, help us even as we wrestle through our own questions um, that may even line up with what the Israelites were, were questioning as well. Help us to know that you are there and that you're still with us and those promises stand true. God, we love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple questions, and if you got your Bibles open, we are going all straight through the chapter, so you're going to want to follow right through with us. I think we kind of got them scrolling through here as well. But some of the questions that we're going to ask and that they asked was, does God care? Does God even care about us? Because at this point, they're in exile for 70 years, and it kind of feels like maybe God's forgotten, that he doesn't care. And we can ask that question today. God, do you care about my situation? Don't you care what I'm going through? It's a common question, and we're going to see that answered uh, within these verses. 1 through 11 is going to kind of answer that question. So Isaiah 40, we're going to kind of walk through that. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. So this comfort that we're talking about here is not just, it's not just good feelings. This isn't like, you know, in the winter, the hot cocoa in the fireplace or like the cool of the evening on a hot summer day, the comfort. This, this is really to be strengthened again or to, to put courage back into you. This is to comfort you because what has happened is ending. The, 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 the discipline that you've been under because of not following God is coming to an end, that, that there is still future hope coming. So do we still sin? Yes. Do we still suffer for that sin? Yes. We can make choices that lead to some consequences that we still live with. But does that mean that God leaves us? No. God is, God is still close to us in our discipline because even in these verses, it's, it's like a child. Like we can discipline a child, but you don't just disown them. And look how he refers to us here. It says, my people. Comfort my people. And then he says, your God, right? There's still this closeness of relationship between us. And then even at the end of that there, it talks about being doubled for all of, all of her sins. And it may not be that, that God's given you double the punishment, but it's actually just the opposite. That God has actually not just given you all this punishment, but we look forward to what Jesus is doing. And Jesus is taking on all of our sin. He's taking our punishment and he's giving us the good that he deserves, and then we continue on in verse 3 that says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and uneven ground shall become level. And the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all the flesh shall, shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. These words are awfully familiar to us. We read them in the Gospels, and when we see... The, John the Baptist coming, that he's going to make a way. And this is so cool that we see this 
spread into the New Testament, being requoted, and that, that God comes. He's, he's planning to come. He's telling us, I care, care so much that I'm sending Jesus, that, and I'm going to prepare the way for him. And so John the Baptist kind of did that in the same way, that he was like rolling out the red carpet, that there'd be no stumbling block. And I love the idea that, that the valleys be lifted and the, the hills be made low, that it's going to be, he's making a way for us, that there's not going to be the obstacles. He's taking those away so that we can come to Jesus and he can take away our sins and save us. I think often we try to, to boil things down a bit. and We try to maybe dumb down things so that we can understand it like, office fans is like, can you explain that to me like I'm five years old? Um, like, I, I need to understand this in a way that's really, really simple. Um, but I think sometimes in doing that, we can trivialize things that are really big. We have these really important ideas that, that we have to understand, and we can't just dumb it down. We need to understand the extent of what's happening. And that's something that we kind of see through these verses. And there was a quote by C.S. Lewis that um, in his novel of uh, of Prince Caspian. Lucy then sees Aslan, um, and it's been a while from, from her last time of seeing him, and she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says, that's because you're older, little one. She says, no, because you are. And he says, I'm not, but every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. And I, th I think in our walk with God, as we grow with him, it's not that we're just growing up, it's that we're understanding more of who God is. And it's not that we understand it just in simple terms, but we're understanding the greatness and the majesty of who he is. And so then we, we move on to these next verses that talks about this crying out. And it's kind of a repetition of, of what Isaiah was already commissioned with in chapter 6, that he is going to be a spokesman for God. And so the voice says, cry. And he says, what shall, I, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And surely the people are grass, and the grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord, of our God, will stand forever. So he's told to cry out about what is, what is everlasting. I, I think we can, we can do a lot of things in our own lives to tr try to make ourselves great. We can try to break records and set records and, you know, have your name put on a billboard. But how long is it before that's just broken by somebody else? And, and all of a sudden, that record that you held in high school, you know, there's just a new name beside it with a better time. And we can move on, and things are fleeting. But the one thing that's never fleeting is God's Word. It stands forever. Matthew 24, 35 tells us the same thing, is that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So all that we know, as grand and awesome as it is, may pass away, but not God's Word. So let's keep going then through Isaiah. It says, Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say, say to the cities of Judah. And I think this is really where I, I find this comfort of, does he care? I think we see it in these verses here. It says, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. His arms rule for him, and behold, his reward is with him. His recompense before him. He will tend to his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. I love the verse that, that behold your God. This is like a, a revealing of something that's, that's grand and, and needs to be 
uncovered here. This behold your God. And he's here for you. We're to be the spokesmen that, that go out and do the same. That as we talk about this good news, we are supposed to help other people behold our God. To help them find the promises through salvation and lead them to the comfort that he gives us. So does God want to deliver us? Yes. But more than just from exile, he wants to save us from our sins and to save us from death. And that's why ultimately this promise isn't just about saving them from exile, it's about salvation. The next, this kind of leads us into our next question is, you know, does he care? He cares. But then we can question, is he able? Like, does he have the power to do what he says he's going to do? Because it's no small thing to say, I'm going to take you from captivity, but it's also no small thing to say, I'm going to save you from your sins. So this section can feel very similar to what we hear from Job as well. That at the end of, of Job's life, or toward the end of the book at least, as we're looking at all the trials that he's been through, God kind of starts asking him a lot of rhetorical questions. And these questions are questions that kind of sit him in place to say, um, who's really in charge here? And understand our position to God and understand God's power and his greatness. I think that too often this kind of, I don't know if, if, how, if you have kids, what that experience was, or if you were a kid, if you were, I guess, when you were a kid, uh, you get home from school and your parents say, so how was school today? Good. Like, so what'd you learn? Stuff. Like, is that the response you, you normally get? Um, it, it's like you, you get nothing out of them. And I feel like sometimes maybe we do the same. Like, people ask us about God and our faith, and we give similar answers. That, we, that we've boiled this down, and we don't give really the, that behold your God kind of moment. I hope that we don't, when people ask us about God, you know, we, who is God? Well, he's good. You know, that we don't give those types of answers. We need people to understand the view of God, his greatness, his majesty. So for the Israelites, they need to readjust their view of God because they've been overtaken by the Babylonians. They've been in exile for 70 years. And in their view, they're kind of looking at it as God's left us here. We're here in exile, in captivity, 70 years. Maybe God's met his match. Maybe, maybe God is big, but he couldn't, he's not bigger than the Babylonians. That's kind of the feeling that they're having here. So they wonder, can God keep his promise? Is he able? So that's what we're going to look through these verses here and see. Uh, we're going to start there in verse 12. And again, these are questions that kind of put this into perspective. Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Right? Okay, this I, I search a lot of random things out while I'm getting ready. You know, the, the, the ocean is like six miles deep in some places. And if you take all the water in all the earth, you know, God can just hold it in the palm of his hand. Like, we need to understand the, the greatness of God. Who, who marked off the heavens with the span of his hand? All of the universe he can measure just in his hand. Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure. He weighs the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who's measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made God to understand? Who taught him the path of justice? Who, who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket, or from a bucket. They're, they're 
accounted as the dust of the scales, and behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for the burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. You see, God, God is actually a very wise creator. Even the, the biggest things that we can possibly imagine are almost as nothing. Like yesterday I'm driving and I'm looking at the, the rolling hills and the corn like waving in the wind and everything. Like it's beautiful, but yet even all of that is grand. I mean, it's as far as you can see. And it's still like, well, that's, that's nothing in the scale of what God's looking at. Even Lebanon was known for its grand cedars. And, and as Solomon's building his temple, it's like, that's where you want to get them from. This is the best. And, and yet even that, and the animals of the forest would not suffice for a, a fire, for the sacrifice. So it's, it's almost like me trying to take one of my kindergarten drawings and, you know, side by side match this with the Mona Lisa. Like, there, there's no comparison here for what's happening. When we look at what God is, a, is capable of, it doesn't seem to compare to what God can do. So he has power over all the nations and even over the leaders of those nations. But we try to bring God somehow down into our understanding and we compare him to our things when really we have to understand that, that God is so much bigger and greater than what we can compare him to. But that's what they try to do here in verse 18. To whom then are you going to liken God? To what likeness do you compare him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, the goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know and do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circles of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them like a, a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has, it, has their stem taken root to the earth. And then he can blow on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare him? that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So who is like our God? There, there, there is no one that we can compare to him. And it's the reason that we have to understand who else could save us from more than exile, but who can save us from sins? Who can save us from our own brokenness? No one. There, there is no one that measures up to that standard to save us. There's no one so great that they would be able except for God. So then lift up your eyes on these on, on high. Look at the stars, right? Who created these? Who brings them out of their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power and not one is missing. And I think it's significant that this is in here about stars because the Babylonians, they, they loved, they were astrologers. They studied the stars. And we understand a lot more than even they did because of the technology that we have. And just in the Milky Way, we, we, we now believe that there are over 100 billion stars. 100 billion. Like, this is outrageous number. And if you were to count them one by one by one, it would take you 3,000 years to count just the stars in our galaxy. And then we understand that there, there are hundreds of billions of galaxies 
in the universe. Like, we have to understand the, the greatness and the majesty that we, that we live in. And yet, God knows every one of them. He notices if a star is missing, right? He, he understands that out of the billions and billions of stars, he knows them all. And he cares for us far more than the stars. We are far more valuable. So God is able to keep his promises. He alone is God. He is extremely able. And I still love that verse, in verse the statement in verse 9. Behold your God. He cares for you and he is able. And I think this last section maybe is a combination of these two questions. Does he care? Is he able? We see he cares enough about us. He, he gathers us in like his flock. He is able. He is great and mighty and powerful. But then we can question, even if he cares and if he's able, is he going to do anything? Will he save us? Because he, he can care and he can have the power to do it. But is he going to choose to? So we continue then in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. There's a big picture of despair. Does God still care? They kind of find themselves in this despair. And a lot of people, when you're in despair, you've lost hope. You, you tend to put yourself into two categories. You kind of just give up. And you just refuse to believe altogether. You kind of decided that in your heart there is no hope. Why try? And on the flip side of that, I think there's the other people that, that maybe wrestle with this. And I think that's why he even refers to him, oh, Jacob, because Jacob wrestled with God. And after this wrestling with God, his name is changed to Israel. And they needed to be reminded that even in the hardest of things, even if there's doubts in your life, you continue to wrestle with those. You don't get, just give up, but you wrestle with those doubts and you wait to see God move and see what God can do. And you'll be reminded of God's greatness. <coughs> We continue reading then, have you not known and have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. We're given this reminder of who God is because we need to know exactly what he's like. He's eternal and everlasting. So the, the circumstances that we face now, the temporary things that we're facing, they do not compare. God knows the outcome. He can already see beyond where we're at right now. And we can trust him through all those things. He's not overwhelmed by those things like we might be. But God is also the creator of everything. There's nothing on our planet or that's the, anything that we see that's unfamiliar to him. He knows it all. He's very intimate with it. God is also always at work. He never gets tired or weary. We can, we can need to take a break and sit down, get a glass of water, whatever. But God is always able. There is no end to what he can do. And God is wise. It says his understanding is unsearchable. We look for answers and think there, there's nobody that knows the answers, but yet God's not confused. We, we can ask those questions, but God is always there. His wisdom has no end. So I think in this collision of our despair and yet God's greatness, there's something that happens in the middle of that. God's greatness kind of overcomes our despair and he begins to renew something within us. We hold on to this future hope because not, God's not going to leave us in pain and the brokenness that we face. 
He renews us and encourages us. He makes us new again. And the verses here at the end of the chapter, these are quoted often. And we have to understand that this is, this is coming out of exile. This is coming out of this point of despair. That even youths shall faint and be weary. The young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So even in our prime, at our best, we can inevitably fail. Our, our human strength just isn't enough. But does that mean that we give up and, and just not try anymore? No. We remember what's happened. I love the song we sang, I believe, right? I believe in all these truths that we continue to sing over and over and over. We need to be reminded of these truths. We remember that God is, is great and remember his glory so that we hold on to the hope that we face. So maybe in your, in your Bible, in verse 31, it, it says, but those who hope in the Lord, and, and I was reading from ESV, it says those who wait in the Lord. I think those kind of go hand in hand here together. But it's that ex, expectant waiting, knowing that what God promised is going to be coming true. It's still there. So in our despair, when life doesn't seem fair, we know that God's not going to leave us in a hopeless world, that he is going to be faithful, and he does that through Jesus. So we keep our hope in God. We expectantly wait faithfully on God because he who promised is faithful. And it says, for those who wait on the Lord, their strength will be renewed. This is very similar language to what's used in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. When God brings the Israelites out of Egypt and they cross the Red Sea, that it says that you, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So I think they needed this reminder that God has been faithful in the past and how he amazingly brought them out of the captivity before, he brought them across the Red Sea and into freedom. And I think they needed to understand that that time that they're in captivity now they're going to see some bad things, but if they keep their hope in God that, and they wait for him, they're going to experience freedom like they've never had before. So all of this really, though, should be pointing toward Jesus. The captivity that we face is to sin, that we're held captive by the sin and death because of our sins. But our freedom is graciously given to us by Jesus, taking on our sin and seeing us through with his sacrificial death on the cross. So it's only when we surrender our lives to him do we kind of find the answers to, to these questions for ourselves. The, the despair and the hard times that we face, they're still going to be there. We still live in a broken world. But our hope is not in this world, but it's to be reunited with God again. So when we keep our hope in him, we keep waiting on him, we see that we'll run and not be weary, we'll walk and not be faint. So we have all these three questions. Does he care? Is he able? And is he going to do something? And I'm sure for a lot of us, we've probably searched these questions on our own. We've asked these questions to ourselves. I think we might sometimes allow our, our limited view of God to overtake what we think God is able to do. And I think we need, maybe need to take some time this week even to, to read the Bible with, with fresh eyes and have new understanding of really what the greatness of God. We've kind of lost our sense of wonder at who he is. 
So even as you, as you go throughout your week, like, like I said, watching the fields and seeing the greatness of what God's created, the stars of the sky, we begin to understand the greatness of what God has done. And then hold fast to the promises that we see in God's word. When he says that he's going to take us from this point of, of being in the broken captivity or in this brokenness and, and, and being in the point of even despair, we have to understand that those promises that he gives us are true and he will be faithful to them even to the end. So take some time this week to understand the greatness of God, the bigness of who he is, and hold fast to his promises. And he promises that he will renew you and strengthen you in those things. So let's pray. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you renew us, you strengthen us, even in the biggest and hardest of things. God, I ask that you would help us to understand you better. That even in our questions and our wrestling with you, that you would help us to, to understand you more fully. And as we understand you, help that to, to begin to, to bring within us the, the, this, this turning back to you and um, to draw us in to worship you. So God, we just ask that you would uh, be with us this week and help us to to hold on to the future hope that we have in you. God, we love you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name.